All right, well, tonight, as I said, we're wrapping up our time in Exodus, and I'm going to give the title to my sermon, An Invitation to the Book of Exodus. And the reason I'm giving that title is I hope that when we finish a sermon series on a book, you don't think, okay, well, I'm done with Exodus. We're never going to be done with Scripture, and the Scripture is never going to be done with us. And hopefully, part of what uh, the sermons do is make you want to dig back into the text. All right, the point is not the sermons. The point is the word that God has given us. Amen? Amen. So tonight I want to do a brief kind of an overview of really, as I said, an invitation to Exodus, why it's relevant still, why it is important still for the people of God. And I think there's a general misconception that people in general fall into. Sometimes I think the church falls into it. And that is that the Bible is about spiritual matters. And then, you know, there's our secular life and then there's spiritual matters. Or it's about salvation and the soul, and those things are kind of otherworldly, and they're not day-to-day and mundane, right? It's about heaven and hell, but, you know, you've got to live your life. Well, sin does that. Sin divides things that God intends to keep together. The Bible's not about spiritual things and, you know, we've got to figure out our life. The Bible is about everything. There's nothing that the Bible doesn't touch on. There's nothing it doesn't impinge on. So those things that get split apart by sin, man and God, man and woman, humanity and the created world, the Bible puts those things back together, right? The work of Jesus Christ puts those things back together. And God is about putting back together all these things that sin has divided. And it's up to us to be a part of that putting back together. So let me just mention a couple of, of things that, we, that are false dichotomies that sometimes get split apart. Should Christians have a spiritual life, a, you know, a life of prayer, a, a sort of a mystical life, or an active life? To quote the angel of the Lord in Joshua, no. It's a wrong question. They belong together. The right worship of God by the Spirit of God prepares you for good work in the world. They're not a false dichotomy. They're put together. Is it faith or works? No. Right? We believe. We trust in the finished work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We trust who God is and how the cross has demonstrated that. And that gives us energy to do all the things that he's called us to do. All the good works he's called us to do. Science or faith? Reason or faith? Once again, no. Science shows us how to do things, but faith shows us what we should do. And they both belong together, and God intends them to be together. So again, the Bible out-narrates everything. The Bible criticizes everything and puts it in its right place, and we're to be a people who are increasingly understanding how that's done. Everywhere Everywhere we see things split into these false dichotomies, but the gospel of Jesus Christ puts them together. And sometimes even God does the separation, but when God separates, it's always for the sake of putting something back together. He separated Adam in the beginning and drew out a rib and made a woman, and he brought them together. He called Abraham out of the nations. Why? To bless the nations. So even when God separates things, it's for the sake of putting them back together. And ultimately, what I hope you walk away from tonight is that the study of Scripture can illuminate everything in life. There's not a question that it doesn't illuminate and address. 
So what I want to do tonight is just sketch, and don't get scared when I say this, nine areas that I think the, the, the book of Exodus, but the Bible in general, can speak to. All right? And I'm just going to sketch them. And really, hopefully you grab one of these. And you go, oh man, I want to dig in and see what the scripture says about how, how the scripture illuminates that area of life. It's up to you to go and take one of these or take several of these and run with it and find out how, uh, how to fill that out. All right, so nine areas. The first one I'm going to mention is identity. All right, who am I? This is a huge question today. Maybe not so much for older generations, but definitely for younger generations. People struggle with the question of who I am. In fact, we're living in an unprecedented time where people are confused about their identity. They're confused about who they are and how to answer that question, who am I? People used to identify with their job or with their family or with their nation or with their church. And increasingly, that's not the case. And what's happening more and more is people are trying to look inside to find out who they are. And it's in all our movies, it's in all our songs, it's in all of our stories, encouraging you to trust your heart. I was pointing this out to, I can't remember who recently, uh, Arthur the Aardvark. Is that what that show was called? What was that show called? Did y'all know what I'm talking about? What was it called? Arthur the Aardvark. The, song, the show opens with a song that says, believe in yourself. That's the place to start, right? Look inside, find out who you are, and then look around and find people to affirm who you found yourself to be inside. And then maybe if you need to look up to God for him to affirm what you found inside. I want to suggest that's a dead end. And it's a source for a lot of confusion. Looking inside, remember the scripture says that our hearts are deceitful above all else. Who can know them? They're not a good source of solid ground for us to find out who we are. And in the book of Exodus, I think we see a great picture of finding out who you are. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. We find out who we are when we are addressed by God. And he addressed Israel in the scriptures and through Moses. And he addresses us through that same word. We have to receive our identity. And think about this. Nobody makes up their own identity. You receive who you are from your parents. You receive who you are from the context in which you were born. And most importantly, we receive who we are by having God tell us who he is and having him draw us out of ourselves and into what he is doing. So it's only by looking up in worship and hearing the word of God that we find out who we are. I am a being made to love God. And in the love of God and the love he has for me, I am to love others. It's the two greatest commandments, and they're summed up in the ten words of the ten commandments. So it puts me in this story and tells me who I am. So I would suggest that the, the crises of identity that's going on in the world, we find answered in Scripture. The second area, justice. The question of justice. This is a, obviously, you can just turn on the news and find that there's all kinds of debates and concerns and questions around justice. And again, many people think of the Bible as this sort of escapist literature for you to think about the afterlife. No, the faith of the Bible is an invasion of history by God. The book of Exodus is just that. It is God's invasion into history, involvement in history to rescue his people. God intervenes on behalf of the weak. He intervenes on behalf of his people who are crying out to him. And just consider the, the, the details that we pointed out in the beginning of the book of Exodus. There's seven women who are instrumental 
in saving Moses' life, in preserving his life. There's the, there's the, uh, the midwives who refuse to kill the children that are born. There's Moses' mother, Jochebed. There's Pharaoh's daughter who's not named. Uh, there's later his wife who intervenes before God for him. His whole life is shaped by women who intervene on behalf of somebody who needs intervening. And of course, that shapes his life. Moses is kind of driven. He's got this passion to protect those who are being oppressed, to rescue those who are being unjustly oppressed. And the whole narrative of Exodus is about God intervening in history to strike someone who is oppressing his people and to deliver them. And more than that, Israel was called to remember that they were slaves. They were called to annually have this festival that reminded them of who they were so that being oppressed in Egypt shaped them forever so that they would never oppress people. Now, of course, the tragedy of Israel is that many times they did, but they were to be shaped as a people who had been rescued by God. That is justice. We are called as God's people to use what strength, influence, and resources we have for the sake of those who do not have it. And we learn that from Exodus. And we do that in history that's not escapist. The incarnation was the greatest invasion of history by God. And he came to rescue us who were enslaved to sin and enlist us in his purposes of bringing rescue to all parts of creation. We're called to imitate that mindset of our Lord who emptied himself to go and intervene on behalf of the oppressed. Leadership. What do we learn about leadership? We've got lots of debates about leadership in our nation, in our nation's capital and other places. The leader that God chose, Moses, was already driven to intervene on behalf of the oppressed. But there's something else I would like to point out about the Bible and about the story of Moses in particular. And that is we get to see all the flaws of that leader. And if you're not familiar with the literature of the time, the literature that went on in the ancient world, there is nothing like it. All the other literature is propaganda. Look at how great this king is. Look at all the wonderful things he did. There's no mistakes in this guy. And the Bible is full of almost nothing but at times the failings and the mistakes of God's leaders. It is the most self-critical literature out there. And it gives us an example for how we are to lead. We are to be open with our faults. We are to admit our faults. We are to acknowledge our faults. The scriptures tell us that Moses was the meekest of all men. He didn't think his position of leadership was about him. It was about God and his purposes. Ultimately, we learn that God's leaders are to be humble. If the world were writing the story of David, you would have heard nothing about God's anger at him with the sin of Bathsheba. You would have heard nothing about God's anger with him with the census. But the scriptures put those things front and center so that God's people, especially his leaders, are humble. The other thing, I think another thing we learn about leadership is that Moses has to learn to delegate. Moses has to learn not to do everything. A good leader creates followers. A great leader creates leaders. And this is what Moses does. He creates a nation of people after him who have responsibility, who carry those responsibilities, and who learn to follow in his footsteps. 
Moses also, I think, had to struggle, and we'll get into this if we ever get into why Moses didn't get into the promised land. But part of it is because I think he got angry with the people. He got frustrated with the people, and he didn't believe in their potential through God's help. He got angry with them. He saw their flaws. I mean, he bore with their flaws, and he got so frustrated with their flaws that he wasn't able to see that God, what God could do through them and have hope for what God could do through him. And so that's another area where we can explore for a long time what Exodus and other scriptures tell us about being a leader. Four, belonging. We long to belong. I, I was thinking of, and this dates me, but remember the show Cheers and the song where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. It should be a description of the church, right? We all crave and long for community. And increasingly in today's world, there's an epidemic of loneliness and the people of God are to hold out the true community that God is building in the earth. But remember, there are different kinds of belonging. There's some bad kinds of belonging. There's the belonging of forced compliance to a regime. And that's what Israel had experienced in Egypt. They were forced into a kind of a false community, conformity by the iron fist. But there's also the belonging of the rebel. Remember, Israel gathers together against Aaron and they demand an idol. It's the belonging of give me what I want. Give me what my lusts crave. And again, that kind of belonging is an idolatrous belonging. But we are called to be a people who belong because we are God's people. And he is putting us together. And we have responded to his grace. And we're enthusiastically working with him and one another to be a place, as we sang tonight, where he dwells in the earth. That is the belonging that we were all made for. And by the way, it's a belonging that comes from the one who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Who part of his essence is belonging itself. And he created to invite us into that fellowship. Amen? Number five, freedom. Freedom. Our country was founded on the notion of freedom. If there was a value that I would suggest all Americans share, it's the value of freedom, of freedom and independence. Probably nothing more universally celebrated in our country. But what is the nature of freedom? How do you understand that freedom? What is its essence? Is it self-determination alone? Is it, don't tell me what to do? Is it like Nietzsche said, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me from outside of me who I am. I am going to create myself. I am going to decide who I'm going to be. That's not the freedom that we see in Exodus. In Exodus 7, 8, 16, it says this. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. True freedom, serving God. Servanthood, slavery to Pharaoh is death and oppression. Slavery to ourselves and our desires is death and oppression. Service to God is very life itself, is very joy, is very freedom. Think of the freedom of a fully trained musician. A musician who's an expert, who's a, who's a performing musician, who plays the violin beyond belief. They went through the limits of practice, of scales of teachers, some of them who were really intense. But you know what those limits that seem to be constraining produce? They produce something beyond which, which something we can't imagine. 
right? The law of God, the teachings of God, what seems like restrictions to us are to set us free to be like a classically trained musician. It's the freedom of the people of God, free to become what God made them to be. Amen? Jesus says in the New Testament, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are called to be free, but it's not a self-determining freedom. It's a freedom with the grace of God to become and to be what God has called us to be. The sixth area, creativity. I mentioned this last week, but I wanted to dig in a little bit more on this. We're made to be makers. One of the more important aspects of being made in the image of God is God made the universe and we are called to be makers in his likeness. Adam was created for meaningful sub-creation or co-creation with God. And one of my favorite illustrations of this is not from Exodus, but it's from Genesis. The scripture says that God made all these animals and God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Do you see the significance of this? God didn't say, Adam, this is a bear, this is a killer whale, this is an ant. He said, Adam, here's something I've made. I'm really excited about it. What do you want to call it? And the scripture says, whatever he called it, that's what, that was his name. Do you know what that means? Our cooperation with God, our work with God is meaningful. It counts to him. And in the naming of those animals, I would suggest are the seeds of all science, of all poetry, of all of the creative works that humanity has engaged in since then. There's different kinds of making, just, just like there's different kinds of freedom. There's, there's making at the service of Pharaoh, which is meaningless. It's demeaning. It's degrading. It's alienating. There's making at the service of my selfish desires. That's the golden calf. Making for myself to appease myself. But then there's the making that we were created for and that Israel was redeemed into. Meaningful partnership with God in what he's doing in the world. They got to make a house that he would inhabit. And he moved into it. So Exodus is another, another aspect of Exodus is restoring the Adamic destiny to be co-creators with God. And we're called to carry that into Literature, movies, art, music, food, laws, organizations. There's so many vocations and callings into which we're called to be meaningful partners with God as we bring order and unfolding to the creation. Amen? The seventh one. I was going to say the environment. But I think it's important when I mean the environment, environmentalism or questions of what we're doing to the environment. I was going to say the environment, but I think it's important to use scriptural words because the environment is sort of a, a stale, sterile word. The appropriate word is creation. It's what God made and God likes. And God called mankind into being those who take care of it. Right? And there is tons, obviously, of turmoil and debate and rage around the globe about the environment. And many, many young people think they're not going to see old age because we're going we're to burn the environment down and poison everything. This produces nothing but despair. But I don't think that's the tone of Scripture. And I want to I dig in just a little bit on that. Again, remember Adam's calling. Adam was called to guard and care for the garden, to work it. He was called to take dominion. And that dominion doesn't mean exacting every last ounce of efficiency and energy out of the world. It means 
preparing for it and unfolding its potential. What we've done with all kinds of, all kinds of resources is a part of that, but we're called to care for it. We're called to guard it. We're called to protect it. And we're called to give rest to the creation that God has made. Notice the Sabbath laws. Every seven years, you remember what farmers are supposed to do? They're supposed to let their land rest. They're supposed to bring rest to creation. So it's not this misunderstanding of the dominion mandate that's just let's exploit it. It is caring for it in cooperation with God and unfolding all of the beauty that God hid in the world for us to find and to bring and to give him glory. So with regard to creation, we have a responsibility to be stewards of it and care for it. Make, excuse me, make it productive, protect it. It's the world God made. And often I think our response to the despairing views of, of the questions about the environment is to say it's all fine. And I think we have to acknowledge that human sin hasn't made it all fine. There's plenty that we're called to address as the people of God following in the footsteps of Adam caring for his creation. Amen? Politics. See, I'm covering everything I can that's really something big. Politics. So just quickly, I'll point out two really important resonances for for the book of Exodus for American history. The founders, they thought in terms of Exodus, the Exodus. They thought in terms of going out from the enslaving leadership of the king of England to being a free people. And they were inspired by the book of Exodus. In fact, Franklin himself made a seal for the United States of America that was an image of Israel going out of, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. All right? that's a, and that's a founder who is a little bit more of a deist. So at our roots, there's this notion of being inspired by the message of Exodus. But the second, uh, the second resonance in American history perhaps is more poignant. It's the slaves that were a part of slavery in the United States of America. When they got a hold of Scripture, when they heard the stories of Scripture, they were gripped by the Exodus story. They were gripped by this message of this enslaved people being set free so that they could serve God. And the shape of the Exodus shaped so much of the movement to abolish slavery in our country. So I think what we see in Exodus, particularly with regards to Pharaoh and regard to politics, is a criticism of the politics of power, is a criticism of the kind of politics that says, I have the power, I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. What we see in Exodus is that all powers, all all places, all people, all systems that claim authority are under the sovereignty of God. They will all be judged by God. All authorities, whether it's kings or systems or ideologies, are ultimately brought under the judgment of God. They're not absolute. They cannot demand absolute loyalty. Not the state, not the king, not the market. All will have to give an account. And what that does is it puts limits on power. It puts limits on government. This is in part why our founders put checks in our constitutional system because they were studying scripture, many of them and saw that scripture put limits on the exercise of power. More than that, what you see at Mount Sinai is God invites his people into covenant with him. And he declares the covenant to them. And it says in several places, but I'll read this from Exodus 19.8. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. God is not a tyrant. And he invites the free consent of his people to enter into covenant with him. 
And that, too, was an inspiration to the founders of our country. Israel becomes a people as they freely and willingly enter into this covenant that God has made. Again, this is just a sketch of where we might explore questions of politics. Finally, this last one I might call economics. I might say that it has to do with work, but I'm going to call it Sabbath. One of the things I particularly noticed this time when we went through Exodus is how unrelentingly important the Sabbath is. It comes up again and again. It's one, it gets the most verbiage in the Ten Commandments itself. And we'll find out later in the Pentateuch, later in the, the five books of Moses, that it unfolds in all kinds of ways. But let me speak to what I think that this addresses. First, we have an, we have an epidemic of anxiety in our country. And if you look at it, there's study after study that shows that especially with young people, especially with people under 20, there's ever-increasing anxiety uh, all across our country. Technology is interesting. Technology promised that we would be able to get more done and have more free time, and we're busier than ever. It has encroached upon all aspects of our life. Pharaoh demanded ever more productivity from his people, ever more efficiency from Israel, squeezing out every last resource from them by the lash. But what does God do? He rescues his people and he gives them rest. He gives them Sabbath. And again, we, we wrestle with, oh man, I got so many things to do. I don't know that I can rest that much. Can you imagine what they thought? I get a whole day. I bet you initially there were tears in their eyes. I get a whole day to rest. God rescued his people and gave them Sabbath. More than that, they were called to rest and to give rest to those under their responsibility. Notice that it says to your children, to your servants or your employees, to your animals. You can't overwork your animals. God, is, God has compassion for them, to your employees. Every seven years, to the land. Every 50 years, if you lost your property because of poor decisions on your part or poor decisions on somebody else's part, the land went back to your family. God, the Sabbath has implications for all kinds of aspects of life that I don't think we have fully fleshed out as his people. What I want to suggest is that the Sabbath is a rebuke to the workaholic and the lazy man alike. All right, it's a call to rest and enjoy God's goodness, feasting, delighting with God, with his people, and sharing that rest with others. I think you see it in Jesus, multiple meals with all kinds of people, where he's inviting them, I think, into the Sabbath rest of the people of God. So there remains a Sabbath rest, as the writer excuse me, of Hebrews says, and we are called to enter into it by the grace of God and to share it with others. Okay, so nine areas where I think we've just begun to understand what Scripture wants to say to us, and hopefully one of those areas inspires you and you want to get into Scripture with that. And let me just end with this. Again, I said this in the beginning, but I want to stress it again here. A sermon's task, usually, is to point you back to the Word, right? It's like a description of a painting. You read the description, but the whole point is to look at the painting. Or it's like reading about a musical piece. You want to listen. So may we as a people go back to his word, and may we become students of his word like Moses was a student of God's word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Stand up.